welcome to the Social Entrepreneurship Diaries. This podcast is produced by SE Lab, the MS International Research Network and Impact Hub Amsterdam. I am Andrea Barbosa, your devoted host. After looking into the roots of social entrepreneurship in Europe for the first episode, I set out to discover the contemporary scene. I had a very broad goal, which was to find out what options there were for social ventures to model themselves in order to ensure impact and sustainability. I made some interviews and read some articles, and in the end I had lots of interesting material, but no red line to hold it together. I struggled for a while until I realized that all social entrepreneurship projects share one underlying characteristic, hybridity. And hybrids are something that I find very seducing. I will skip mermaids and Greek mythology and get down to business. Think about thrift shops. Everything there is secondhand, from clothes to furniture to books. Besides the ecological dimension, they often also provide work opportunities for disadvantaged populations. Are you familiar with the shops run by the Emmaus communities? The idea came from the renowned Abbé Pierre, who founded Emmaus in 1949 France. Rather than rely on charity to help the homeless and destitute, he engaged them in the task of recovering and reselling items that had been thrown away. This created income, jobs and less waste. Thrift shops are social and environmental projects made entirely self-sufficient through business. And this beautiful hybrid comes with the bonus advantage of being a great place to shop when you are stingy like me. Taking hybridity one step further and applying it to systems and ideas is even more alluring. I love the idea that private interests and general welfare don't have to clash, they can work together for the benefit of both. When one considers the transforming force that capitalism has proved to be, one must give a chance to the idea of tapping into that power for other ends. But my general belief in harmony and compromise is perhaps naive. I promise to switch on my critical radar. The best-known hybrid organization in the world is perhaps the Grameen Bank, the microcredit institution founded by Nobel Prize winner Mohamed Yunus. The Grameen Bank became the empirical ground on which a new business model was theorized by Yunus and some scholars alongside him. This model is called the social business model. One of those scholars is Laurence Léman Ortega from the École des Hautes Études Commerciales in Paris. Here's how she summarizes the essence of the social business model. In a social business, the way Mohamed Yunus defines it and the way he has built it with the Grameen Bank, for example, is that the objective of this business is not as a conventional business to maximize profit. However, this business should at least break even. So a social business model is not going to pay back money to shareholders, it's not going to distribute dividends, but at least it should break even. That is, the revenue of the social business model should at least cover the entire costs of the business model. The social business is one particular model along what is sometimes called the hybrid spectrum, which has traditional nonprofits on one end 
and traditional for-profits on the other end, with all sorts of combinations in between regarding the way those organizations are funded. I realized that social businesses and social enterprises are different concepts, but they definitely are neighbors in the hybrid spectrum. I want to stress that in this episode, I will look not only at hybrid models, but also at hybrid strategies, which can originate within any kind of organization. We start off in Valencia, Spain. That's where Raúl Contreras, a businessman, economist and social entrepreneur, started a holding of social businesses called Yuna. For this work, he was awarded a fellowship by the Ashoka Foundation. 15 years ago, he was a regular businessman who wanted to make a contribution towards a more inclusive society. With the complicity of some other business people, he wanted to offer ex-convicts and drug addicts the possibility to get into the job market. The world of exclusion, though, was unfamiliar to him, so he decided to go and live there. I moved to a poor neighborhood, the quintessential Valencia slum, which is called Barrio de la Coma. I lived in this neighborhood for 11 years, sharing its daily life, and that's how the project of creating a holding of social businesses came to life. Why a holding? Because back then, the promotion of employment meant little more than offering training. Some entities were acting as mediators, trying to help people to find job placements. But even with that kind of support, most people couldn't get into the job market. And this is why we decided to create our own jobs. And, well, creating jobs means creating companies. We could have created one company and then another, but I was determined to help the neighborhood by using all possible tools within the system in order to benefit the people. The first company created by Raúl and his associates was a transportation company which specialized in delivering documents within the harbor of Valencia. Then came a gardening business, a fair trade wholesaler, and a construction company employing only female builders with a history of drug abuse, prostitution or prison. The holding that encompassed these companies allowed them to share resources and, very importantly, it became a financial instrument. 420,000 euros were raised from selling stocks to social investors and a social stock exchange was created to provide liquidity. We shall look more closely at this financial construction in our upcoming episode about financing social ventures. Anyway, this all sounds like an amazing feat, a great success. But Raúl was disappointed. Here's why. With these companies, we understood two things. The first one is that companies which promote employment, which create jobs for a special group of people, these companies require a titanic effort. You need to start a business with all that this implies and manage to achieve an operating profit that allows you to deal with the costs of integrating those people when you eliminate those costs, because the worker has moved into the regular job market, another one comes in with more costs because that's what your company is about. It's a transit company. With our four companies operating according to this model, we managed to steer about 200 people into the regular job market. At the scale of the neighborhood, and I'm not even talking about the city of uh, Valencia, 
that number is just ridiculous. I don't mean to discard this model, because for every one of those 200 individuals, it was a great thing. But if we wanted to think macro, we needed to find a model that would generate much more social profit. And so our fifth company was a temporary employment agency. It placed teams of workers in the production plants of big companies. We began by making a test with a couple of multinationals and the results were very positive. In just one company we could place up to 50 people. We had experts in work integration guiding them. But more importantly, there were 1,500 workers in that plant. So the standard of normality is so strong that it absorbs those 50 people and speeds up the integration process. This was an important realization for us. We had encountered many problems in our other companies and it became obvious that we needed to look for a different kind of solution. So there was Raúl, standing at a crossroad. He had begun by creating a number of social enterprises in order to address the problem of job exclusion. Now he finds out that classic companies actually do a much better job at that. How will he solve this contradiction? We shall soon find out. But first, let me introduce you to another story. This story also unfolds in Spain, in Sevilla this time. Meet Ana Bella, a survivor of domestic violence who started a foundation to help other women like her. Well, I'm Ana Bella. I'm a survivor of women that are also in a shock of I ran a foundation. Uh, one moment, I have to think in English. <laughs> yes, yes, please. Take your time, take now, your time. Foundation, we are like a network of survivor women we use our time, our empathy, our strength to help victims to release their full potential as a survivor women that can add a social chain makers. The sound is bad, but I'm sure you can hear the passion in Anabella's voice. After she fled home with her four children to escape domestic violence, she found it difficult to get a decent job. In her account, public agencies viewed her as a victim and oriented her towards menial jobs that did nothing for her self-esteem. Anabella started calling herself a survivor rather than a victim and offered support to other women in the same situation. A network emerged that would help survivor women to start a new life, at first with no resources other than the homes of these same women, later with the support of market partners. A big breakthrough happened when the dairy multinational Danone partnered with Anabea Foundation. Together they came up with the concept of brand ambassador. Danone would help the foundation to train survivor women as product promoters and employ them. Anabella loved this. Far from the mindset of assisting the victim through subsidies, which in her view was the public approach, this meant valuing women for their life skills as survivors and marketing these skills. We saw a business need and we addressed this business need with a social solution. The need was that the companies they need to send the products. Um, Survivor women, we need empowered job position for us to avoid the social exclusion. And 
with the help of Danone, we create this model of brand ambassadors. So now women, survivor women, they are trained to become brand ambassadors for big companies. They are the eyes, the voice, the look of a big company. So they get empowered. The Anabeya Social School for Women Empowerment is now training brand ambassadors for several different companies. The foundation is, of course, much more than a mediator between the women and those marketing job positions. It is a network, a community, a way of life, really, built around the idea that the hardships you've been through are your biggest asset because you have survived them and learned from them. But the connection to big economic players is a fundamental part of the project. Anabella told me that the foundation's partner, Danone Spain, received an award for social innovation. She was there at the ceremony, all the while thinking that big companies are the best potential channels for social change. And Danone received an award in Spain for social innovation about this project. And the big, big CEO was telling many other companies in Spain that survivor women, they are not the problem, they are an asset for his company. Wow, this was amazing. For me, I was there and it's what I saying, this is the way to change society from inside because big companies can accelerate social change. Maybe you can create a policy, but if the company don't do it, because they believe in this, this policy is not worth it. Let me now go back to the concept of hybridity in order to frame these two stories. Raul Contreras' holding of social enterprises is definitely a hybrid organization, while Anabella's partnering with the Danone Corporation can be seen as a hybrid strategy. Hybridity, by the way, can also arise at the other end of the spectrum. Traditional for-profit companies are known to have transformed their business models in order to reduce their social and environmental costs or even have a positive social impact. There's a famous example in the United States. Interface, a carpet manufacturer, started leasing rather than selling its carpets, assuming responsibility for reparation and recycling. Such radical transformations in business model are rare, though. What seems to have become the norm within corporations are CSR programs. Corporate social responsibility has driven many companies to emulate the third sector or reach out to it in order to develop hybrid strategies. Here's one example that has been closely followed by Laurence Lemont Ortega. There is a very interesting example that I have documented in the Bell Group. So Bell is a French, uh, originally French company in the dairy products and cheese. For example, they're selling La Vache Kiri, the laughing cow, all over the world. So this is one of their products. And they are very, uh, very well implanted in Vietnam. This is one of their big countries. And um, in this country, they really wanted to do something for poor people. So this was part of their CSR policy about uh, a bottom of the pyramid consumers. So people who really cannot afford their conventional products. And so they, they tried a lot of things like developing a new product. And, and as always, it's very difficult to, to actually make this type of strategies work because it's, 
it's so difficult to develop a specific product. So they actually tried to address it in another way. And they said, what we really want to do is to help poor people through our business. It's not through charity, but really through our business. And uh, so they realized that in Vietnam, a lot of uh, retail was done actually by street vendors, by informal markets. So people who buy the vegetables in the morning and then go out with their bikes usually and sell it throughout the city. And so they said, well, those people are really poor and um, how could we help them? And so they decided to actually let those people sell their main conventional product, which is the laughing cow, and to make a margin on those products. So this is probably the first time that a brand company, a fast-moving consumer good company with a very strong brand, has allowed the informal sector to sell its products. And uh, what is very interesting with this example is that um, it actually increased the sales of uh, the Laughing Cow in Ho Chi Minh City, where the experiment took place last year, by over 10%. So it's really a new channel of distribution for the Bell Group. But at the same time, it's helped those people make a better living. And especially also what they, what they did was to train them and also to provide them with uh, micro-insurance to make sure that uh, those people, if they lose their job, they can still pay for their children's education because their children are very often back in their, in their home, um, in, the, in the villages uh, and not in the city. They also made sure that those people had access to a banking account, which they had not access to before. And the interesting thing is that the person who got the idea inside of the company was a complete outsider. It was a social entrepreneur that the firm has actually hired to find this type of ideas because they were aware that by themselves they could not challenge uh, the existing rules of the game that much and come up with such disruptive business models. I think this is a very interesting experience indeed if you don't look too much at the dubious benefits of a mass-produced European cheese taking over a market that traditionally doesn't consume cheese. Staying in this line of thought, let me step back and look at these seemingly happy marriages between big capital and social progress. Stories like La Vache Kiri and Anabella's brand ambassadors are very sexy indeed, but what happens once the party is over? I wonder if those marketing job positions for survival women are real levers for an empowered life, or if these women are being commodified and placed on Danone's reputation window. More generally, in hybrid models and strategies, there's always the danger that the two goals, the social and the financial one, are at one point at odds with one another. Laurence Lemont-Ortega has observed this tension in the Grameen experience and mentioned the example of certain entreprises d'insertion, which are French social enterprises operating in the field of employment, like Raoul's holding, but relying partly on public funding. One tension that can exist at one time is that the more homeless people you get back into a conventional job, the more subsidies you get from the state. The problem is that if you want to have more subsidies in this case, it's very easy to select the homeless people you want to accept in your company. That is, you 
you don't want to accept people who spend 20 years in the street because they will be very difficult to bring back to a conventional job. So what we're going to do, you're, tr you're going to try to select younger people, people who have just been in the street for, let's say, six months. So people who are easier to bring back into the conventional job. And so this is the kind of tension that a, that a company can have at one point. So when you look only at the, at the profitability, you could say, hey, this company is very good because look, they brought back 85% of the people to a conventional job. Wow, that's a very high percentage. And look at this other company that is doing the same, but they only bring back 40% of the people to jobs. Well, you also have to look at what type of people they started to work with. And sometimes only looking at economic performance can actually hide the real social performance. So those type of tensions are very, very strong in social businesses. The other problem I find in the hybrid mindset is its disregard for the public sphere. It is certainly true that the state can be slow and inefficient in addressing social issues and that transferring responsibility to the private sphere may accelerate things and foster creative approaches. But then you end up with fragmented initiatives that spring from individual visions of what social good is and not from a collective negotiated approach. Milton Friedman wrote in a 1970 article that corporate social responsibility, that is, the spending by companies on social causes of their choice, is undemocratic because it deviates taxable resources to ends that have not been democratically sanctioned. Of course, Friedman was a strong advocate of the free market and his criticism is about principles and not the reality of things, but it's worth mentioning. Also, practices in the public sphere have been evolving fast. Ideas such as subsidies promote dependence or public management is opaque. These ideas are ready for the recycle bin. Interestingly, the examples of Raúl Contreras and Ana Bella show that hybrids are not incompatible with macro approaches and institutions. Remember Raúl Contreras' frustration at realizing that despite so much investment, his holding had been able to help only a small number of people? He was confronted with a choice. He and his partners could go on creating and managing companies that would employ the people left out of the non-inclusive mainstream system. Or they could work on the system itself. We realized that we could contribute much more by working on the causes, and for us that means changing the economic model. That means offering a model for inclusive, comprehensive businesses to be applied to market companies. By doing so, we would be changing the dimensions of the solution and preventing problems in the first place. So they handed the holding over to an NGO. Only two of those five individual companies remain active today. Raúl moved on to found Nitua, a platform working on tools for inclusive businesses, much involved in the evaluation of social impact, of which we shall talk on our next episode. Nitua, the platform, is now collaborating with Spanish public agencies and the European Union in order to promote the use of inclusive and sustainable management tools at the broadest possible level. Yo estoy totalmente convencido 
I am totally convinced that if things are to change, and careful here, because I don't want to be misunderstood, if things are to change, we have to act outside of the employment policies and social support policies which are attached to subsidies and promote hiring by reducing costs to the employer. This logic is not the logic of business. As I said, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't mean to disengage the state from its duty of providing solutions and resources for social problems. But from the moment that the system starts viewing social value as economic value, it will not need to rely on things like subsidies in order to hire certain people. The system will know how to increase the value of a business, not just through financial transactions, but also through the creation of environmental and social value. And because the system will have the tools to integrate these other forms of value, then profitability will not depend on subsidies. The system will no longer need coercion and rewards from the state. This is the system that we want to promote, because we believe that the business manager is a social agent. There is of course bad business management, but there is also bad public management and bad NGO management. But a business manager remains a social agent of primary importance. And what they need is the knowledge and the tools to expand their business, not by making us buy more stuff we don't need, but by increasing those values which the market fails to recognize. The Anabella Foundation is working with the regional government in Andalusia on new policies concerning domestic violence. It is also providing training for students in law, psychology and social work who may later come across such cases. And Anabella believes her foundation is well-placed to inspire other survivor networks around the world. So I built this whole episode around the notion of hybridity, but I have to admit that I probably should have been promoting another concept, pluralism. When I look back at the stories in this episode, I see the most potential for real change in the institutional collaborations that I have just presented, NITUA, the social enterprise, developing inclusive management tools for corporate and public organizations, while also discussing such matters with legislators in Brussels. More than organizations trying to be everything at once and risking losing their soul in the process, the key seems to be collaboration between plural economic actors. Before saying goodbye, I want to remind you that we have a website, sediaries.org, where you can find all the references concerning this episode. You can leave a comment or write us an email. We would love to hear from you. In two weeks, there will be a new episode of the Social Entrepreneurship Diaries. Many thanks to Raúl Contreras, Anabella Esteves and Laurence Lemont-Ortega. A special thank you note to Rocío Nogales and Peter Linde, whose contribution was crucial for this episode. Credit for the music we use on our podcast goes to Poddington Bear, Alex Fitch and Adam Seltzer. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.